you seen the fleeting comet with its terrifying tail? That was the question on everyone's lips in 1618. In that year, a comet appeared that was of such brightness that all eyes and minds were immediately turned toward it. Suddenly, men had no greater concern than that of observing the sky. Great throngs gathered on mountains and other very high places with no thought for sleep and no fear of the cold. That stellar body with its menacing rays was considered a monstrous thing. According to some prophet, the comet was a cosmic omen foretelling imminent disaster. I quoted uh, these vivid descriptions from Orazio Grassi, a contemporary of Galileo. Uh, these two guys, they had a big fight about comets. Grassi was a fine scientist. He was basically right about comets. Galileo, on the other hand, was totally wrong. His theory on comets is extremely poor. However, Galileo managed to spin this somehow and still come out on top in the eyes of many modern readers, despite being absolutely wrong as a matter of uh, scientific fact. This is quintessential Galileo. Wrong on science, but a rhetorical master. Galileo could write a self-help book called How to Appear to Win Any Debate, even when you're wrong from start to finish on every single uh, point of substance. If Galileo is the father of anything, it is not science, but it is this art form of winning debates through rhetorical trickery. So if you're looking to pick up some tricks from that playbook, then the Galileo is your guy, and the comets dispute is the place to start. And Galileo, in this case, skillfully caricatures his opponent as an obstinate enemy of science who relies on books and the words of authorities instead of using facts and, and reason and observation. People eat this up, this, this propaganda. Galileo is like a populist politician. He's giving people a pleasing narrative, uh, flatters and validates their worldview. Truth has little to do uh, with anything in that context. So that's an overview of the story. And uh, now let's have a look at the, at the details of the science here. The science of comets. So like Grassi says, the single role of the mathematician is merely to explain the position, motion and magnitude of those fires. That is to say the comets. So none of that uh, superstition nonsense and so on with the, oh, it's an omen of so and so. No, no, just calculate the paths, the distances, the speeds. Uh, and indeed, that is what mathematicians have been doing for generations. Tycho Brahe, for instance, he worked extensively on comets. That's the generation before Galileo. And he gave a thorough mathematical analyses of the motions of comets, as a mathematician should. Now, of course, it would be difficult for Galileo to enter this game since he was such a poor mathematician, as I have argued before. If Galileo had been honest, he could have said, uh, frankly, all those detailed calculations that Tycho Brahe and the other big boy mathematicians are doing, that's all too technical uh, for me to follow. If Galileo had said this, he would have been uh, honest. Of course, he doesn't want to say that. He needs to save face. He needs an excuse for ignoring what all serious mathematical astronomers uh, were saying about comets. And sure enough, he is quick to offer such excuses. First, he claims that mathematical accounts of comets are hopelessly inconsistent. Here are his own words. Quote, Observations made by Tycho and many other reputable astronomers upon the comet's parallax vary among themselves. If complete faith be placed in them, one must conclude that the comet was simultaneously below the sun and above it, for example, and other inconsistencies. So, the mathematical astronomy is just a bunch of useless nonsense. You see, it's self-contradictory, full of paradoxes, and so on. Galileo has an even more fundamental argument, actually, for ignoring 
the mathematics of, of comets, namely that comets are not physical bodies traveling through space at all, like all mathematical astronomers believed. Rather, comets are nothing but a chimerical atmospheric phenomena. In my opinion, says Galileo, comets have no other origin than that a part of the vapor-laden air surrounding the Earth is for some reason unusually rarefied and is uh, struck by the sun and made to reflect its splendor. A comet is like the northern lights, a comparison that Galileo specifically makes. Something along those lines, or like a rainbow, or you know these kinds of things. So uh, that's Galileo's uh, very convenient uh, excuse for why he doesn't engage with the best mathematicians working on comets. Uh, this way, he's able to pretend that, oh, well, you see, uh, it's not that I can't do these calculations, it's just that I don't want to, because they all contradict themselves anyway, and it's all nonsense in the first place, because you can't do mathematical astronomy to some vapor cloud optical illusion thing. Uh, that's as futile as uh, chasing a rainbow. So there's textbook uh, Galileo for you. If you don't believe uh, my thesis that Galileo was a poor mathematician, then you tell me a better explanation for this. Why did Galileo propose such an idiotic theory of comets that is dead wrong and obviously way worse than the common sense standard opinion among all mathematical astronomers at the time? I gave you one explanation, namely that Galileo was trying to avoid having to do mathematics. And, uh, well, if you don't believe me, try coming up with a better explanation then. I don't think you can, and nobody has to my knowledge. And the Galileo's claim that the mathematical astronomy of comets is incoherent, is self-contradictory, this, of course, did not convince anybody. Kepler was flabbergasted that somebody who calls himself a geometer could write such uh, drivel. Here are Kepler's uh, words, I quote him. Galileo, if anyone is a skilled contributor to the geometrical demonstrations and he knows what a difference there is between the incredible uh, observational diligence of Tycho and the indolence common to many others in this most difficult of all activities. Therefore, it is incredible that he would criticize as false the observations of all mathematicians in such a way that even those of Tycho would be included. That's the end of the quote from Kepler. And indeed so, it is incredible that a skilled geometer could make such ludicrous uh, claims. Yes, incredible. Of course, the paradox disappears if one recognizes that actually Galileo is not a skilled geometer after all. Then it's not so incredible that he would make these ridiculous claims. And Galileo also offered another very poorly considered argument against the correct view of comets as orbiting bodies. The orbits of comets are clearly much bigger than that of the planets in our solar system. Galileo tries to argue that this is unrealistic. And here's what he says, quote, How many times would the world have to be expanded to make room for an entire revolution of a comet when one 400th part of its orbit takes up half of our universe. That's the quote. Uh, this is a very poor argument indeed, because the universe must in fact be very big and then some according to Copernican theory. This is because of the absence of stellar parallax we have discussed before. Since the Earth motion is observationally undetectable, the orbit of the Earth must be minuscule in relation to the distance to the stars. Otherwise, the appearance of the sky would change radically in the course of a year. So this means that uh, indeed there must be lots and lots and lots of space between us and the, uh, and the stars, which means that there is plenty of room for comets. But Galileo conveniently pretends otherwise in his argument against Tycho. 
Evidently, as one scholar has observed, Galileo was so intent on refusing Tycho's treatment of comet that he failed to notice that he was pleading for a universe in which there would be no room for the heliocentric theory, either which he supposedly supported, even though he gives arguments inconsistent with it on this occasion. Galileo's own vapor-based theory of comets, meanwhile, is inconsistent with basic observations, as he himself admits, in fact. If comets are nothing but rarefied vapor, that is to say some kind of a pocket of thin gas, like Galileo imagines, then you would think that their natural motion would be straight up, kind of like a helium balloon. And indeed, Galileo does propose that comets do have such paths, straight paths uh, perpendicular to the ground going straight up. Uh, but then he at once admits that this does not fit the facts. This is a quote from Galileo. I shall not pretend to ignore that if the material in which the comets uh, take form only had a straight motion perpendicular to the surface of the Earth, the comet should have seemed to be directed precisely towards the zenith, whereas in fact it did not appear so. This compels us either to alter what was stated or else to retain what has been said adding some other course for this apparent deviation. I cannot do the one, nor should I like to do the other. End quote. Well, okay, so how are you solving it then? Well, he just doesn't, you know, bummer, doesn't work, but he sees no way out, so he just leaves it at that and say, well, I, uh, I can't solve it this way, I can't solve it that way, so uh, tough luck. Galileo's contemporaries were uh, not impressed. Grassi, who we mentioned before, his criticism on Galileo is on the whole penetrating into the point. He was quick to spot Galileo's inconsistencies. Grassi produced an impressive array of arguments to show that vapors could not explain the appearance of the motion of the comets as Galileo had claimed. These are quotes from a leading historian. For instance, uh, the speeds of comets do not fit uh, Galileo's theory. According to Galileo's theory, the vapors causing the appearance uh, of, of comets should rise uniformly from the surface of the Earth straight upwards, and therefore the comet should appear to be moving fast when it's close to the horizon, and then much slower when it's higher in the sky. Just imagine the red helium balloon released by a child at a carnival. At first it shoots off quickly, covers a lot of uh, ground, but then uh, soon you can barely see whether it's rising anymore, even though it's keep going up, perhaps more or less at the same speed, but because of the distance and the angle of sight has changed, it, you know, you can't see anymore that it is uh, rising uh, barely. Uh, it's barely perceptible at all that it's rising, even though it is. Comets do not behave like that. That's what you would have expected then. If you, Galileo's theory was right, you would see comets have this behavior, speeding up from the horizon and then standing still up somewhere in the middle of the sky. But no, no. That doesn't happen. Detailed observations of the comets of 1618, they showed a much more constant speed throughout the heaven, throughout the sky, than uh, Galileo's hypothesis had required. So let's see how Galileo responded to this, to his problems with his theory. Not by improving the scientific quality of his arguments, mind you. But instead, he proposed some clever rhetorical tricks that has many readers fooled to this day. Many find Galileo's rousing uh, mockery of his opponent to be so satisfying that uh, they are seduced into celebrating it as proof of Galileo's philosophical acumen. You can read Galileo's uh, triumphant put-downs of his opponent and go like, yeah, crush him, you know, get him, Galileo. Uh, 
it's the same kind of pleasure as watching the villain get punched in the face in an action movie. But the little reflection shows that this hero versus villain dynamic that Galileo tries to cultivate is a dishonest fiction. It's very little to do with reality and, and fact. So one of Galileo's most celebrated passages concerns eggs. The context is the following. Grassi makes the absolutely correct point that comets, if they enter the Earth's atmosphere, will quickly heat up to very great temperatures due to the friction of the air. In support of this point, Grassi quotes a 10th century Byzantine author Suidas, who claimed that, quote, the Babylonians whirled about eggs placed in slings, and by that force they cooked the raw eggs. So supposedly the friction of uh, moving the egg quickly in the, uh, in the sling causes them to become uh, boiled. So Grassi also quotes passages describing similar phenomena in Ovid, uh, Luke and Lucretius, Virgil, Seneca. And then he says, For who believes that men who were the flower of erudition and speak here of things which were in daily use in military affairs would wish egregiously and impudently to lie? I am not one to cast a stone at those learned men. So Galileo is unable to answer the substantive point here about the friction heating the comet. Instead, he believes that comets entering the atmosphere, they would cool down because of the wind rather than heat up because of friction. Galileo is wrong and Grassi is right about the actual scientific issue of comets. But that's nothing Galileo's trademark sophistry can't uh, work around. Galileo finds a way to win the debate anyway without actually offering any correct uh, scientific claim regarding the actual subject of comets. He does this by gloatingly attacking Grassi for relying on uh, books rather than experimental evidence. Here's Galileo's famous quote. If Grassi wants me to believe that the Babylonians cooked their eggs by whirling them in slings, I reason as follows. If we do not achieve an effect which others formerly achieved, then it must be that in our operations we lack something that produced their success. And if there is just one single thing we lack, then that alone can be the true cause. Now, we do not lack eggs, nor slings, nor sturdy fellows to whirl them, and yet our eggs do not cook, but merely cool down faster if they happen to be hot, if you put them in a sling. And since nothing is lacking to us except being Babylonians, then being Babylonians is the cause of the hardening of eggs, and not the friction of the air. Is it possible that Grassi has never observed uh, the coolness produced on his face by the continual change of air when he's writing post? If he has, then how can he prefer to believe things related by other men that having happened 2,000 years ago in Babylon rather than present events which he himself experiences? End quote. Like I said, not a few modern philosophers blindly and critically fall for Galileo's rhetoric here in this passage. Here's a typical quote on this. It's from the Wiley Blackwell book, uh, Philosophy of Science and Historical Anthology, a common textbook. Here's what the editors of this popular textbook uh, say about Galileo's argument. Quote, Galileo shot back with a blistering critique in which he pillories Grassi and articulates a tough-minded empiricism as an alternative to the mere citation of venerable authority. End quote. So uh, Galileo would no doubt be very pleased that so many readers still to this day come away with the impression that tough-minded empiricism, it was sets him apart from his opponents. 
That is precisely the intended effect of his ploy. But this has very little basis in reality. Let us consider, uh, in fact, what Grassi actually says. Just a few pages earlier, in the very same treatise, Grassi describes extensively various laboratory experiments that he carried out himself with regard to a related point on the subject of comet. And here's a quote from his treatise. I decided that no industry or labor ought to be spared in order to prove this by many and very careful experiments. See, this is spoken by the supposed obstinate enemy of empirical science, according to Galileo's caricature. So the notion that Galileo is the only one tough-minded enough to reject authority in favor of experiment, it is very far off the mark. Even in the passage criticized, when, when uh, he's quoting these ancient authorities, Grassi is clearly not engaged in the mere citation of venerable authority. On the contrary, he honestly and openly cites sources purporting to truthfully report empirical information, just like any scientist today cites previous work without rechecking the experiments uh, personally. This is not inconsistent with scientific method. On the contrary, it is an essential part of how all science operates, and it is uh, unavoidable also in modern science. And indeed, Grassi does not believe that these authors are automatically right because they're venerable authorities. Rather, he explicitly considers the possibility that they're wrong. Remember, that's what the quote just said. You know, maybe they are wrong, but I don't think so, right? That's what he said. He estimates, quite reasonably really, that these authors are probably right. Even though it turns out they were not, but I mean, that's not really Grassi's fault. For that matter, Galilei himself was not above believing falsehoods on the basis of venerable authorities. We have seen him make an error of this type in his theory of tides. He had heard somewhere that high and low tide in Lisbon occurred 12 hours apart rather than 6, and he jumped at the chance to cite this false information as evidence for his erroneous theory of tides, as we recall. To take another example, Galilei also believed the ancient myth of uh, Archimedes setting fire to enemy ships by means of mirrors focusing the rays of the sun. This myth is credible, says Galileo. Uh, erroneously. Descartes sensibly took the, the opposite view, for example. So, altogether, the simplistic contrast between Grassi, the credulous believer in authority, and Galileo, the experimenter, has little basis in fact. Galileo is scoring easy points with his taunts about these eggs by dishonestly pretending that the simplistic point about empiricism was the crux of the matter, which it was not. It is worth uh, keeping the context of the passage in mind. Indeed, the, the pro-Galileo interpretation that I quoted above from the Wiley Blackwell textbook, it comes with its own origin story. Interestingly, it says, quote, in the course of his career, Galileo engaged in many controversies and made powerful enemies. One of those enemies was the Jesuit Grassi, who published an attack on some of Galileo's works, end quote. Well, this framing goes very well with the notion of the tough Galileo, bravely defending himself against attacks from the powerful establishment. The reality is really quite different. Grassi was not a powerful enemy. He was just a middling college professor, just like Galileo. And the conflict did not start with Grassi attacking Galileo, but precisely the other way around. Grassi published a fine lecture on comets, in which he argued correctly that the absence of uh, parallax shows that comets are beyond the moon. 
just good science. Galileo is not mentioned in this work. Galileo has not written on comets at this point. And Galileo read Grazi's lecture and filled the margins, as one scholar has pointed out uh, comically, uh, with an entire vocabulary worth of savage expletives. It's a buffoon, bumbling idiot, a piece of utter stupidity, etc., etc. This is uh, Santillana's book, Galileo's Crime. You can read about it there. So uh, Galileo then published an attack on uh, Grassi, which was not much more restrained than these marginal notes full of expletives. And Grassi replied to Galileo's attack. It is this reply, Grassi's reply to Galileo's attack, is that is called an attack on some of Galileo's works, you know, in the pro-Galilean quotation that I, that I uh, just cited from the textbook. So to sum up, Galileo's celebrated pillorying of Grassi was not a tough defense against an attack on some of his work by powerful enemies. In fact, the enemy was not a powerful arm of authority, but rather a conscientious scholar who was right about comets based on good scientific arguments that Galileo rejected erroneously. And the enemy was not a cruel aggressor going after some works by Galileo unprovoked. Rather, the some works in question was an aggressive attack initiated by Galileo in the first place. Furthermore, Galileo's enemy did not favor venerable authority of empiricism, but rather based his analysis on comets on much more thorough empirical work than Galileo did. Okay, so that concludes what I had to say about comets. Let me tell you another story. Double stars. The telescope revealed the existence of double stars, meaning stars that had appeared as just a single uh, point of light to the naked eye, but then when you looked at them with uh, good magnification in a telescope, they turned out to consist of two separate stars. Uh, double stars had the potential to prove Copernicus right. This was pointed out to Galileo by his friend Castelli. Castelli was excited about uh, double stars because he hoped they could be proved that the Earth moves around the Sun because of how the double star would change appearance in the course of a year. So the idea is the following. You look at the double star in your telescope, you see that there's not one star but two, one bigger one and a smaller one. Now you make the assumption that probably all stars are pretty much the same. They are all just so many suns, as it were. So the smaller looking one is probably about the same size. In reality, it's just further away. That's why it looks smaller. Now, let's see what happens when the Earth moves. Let's try to picture this. Uh, you can use your index fingers. Hold up one finger in front of you. Now put your other index finger uh, further away from you, but aligned with the first one in a single line of sight. Now, if you move your head slightly to one side, you will see the two fingers move apart, so to speak. And if you move your head uh, uh, to the other side, they will move apart in the other direction. So the closer finger, this corresponds to the bigger star when you're looking at the, the double star in a telescope, the closer finger is sometimes to the left and sometimes to the right of, the, of, your, of your far finger, right? Mm -hmm. So moving your head here corresponds to moving the Earth. If the Earth is truly moving, like Copernicus says, then we should be able to observe this kind of thing happening. Stars switching places in this way. Well, that would certainly not happen if the Earth was stationary. So this would give us striking and undeniable evidence for the motion of the Earth. So this is a kind of parallax effect. So it has an effect that occurs as a result of the motion of the observer. We spoke of parallax before. Astronomers had failed to detect parallax in the past. 
even though Copernican theory predicts that parallax must be a thing since the Earth is indeed moving over a vast uh, orbit. So you think that should be detectable in terms of the changing perspective that is created. And the traditional method to look for parallax was based on trying to detect subtle shifts in the relative position of stars using uh, tricky precision measurements of angles. That turned out not to be successful, but, uh, well, it has to do with precision of observation. The double star case uh, would be quite, has potential to be quite different, really. It could prove the matter in a much more striking and immediate way without the need for uh, technical measurement. Anybody would be able to see with their own eyes the undeniable fact that the two stars had switched places in the course of a year. And uh, since with this approach, everything takes place within the single field of view of the telescope, there's reason to believe then that uh, this new technology, the telescope, would enable success where conventional naked eye astronomy had failed. Those old attempts trying to measure angles were a lot more difficult than this immediate visual impression directly in a telescope. So, well... Sounds promising. This is what Castelli was excited about, and he wrote to Galileo explaining these points. He urged Galileo to make observations of double stars uh, for this purpose, and indeed Galileo did so in 1617. And he made detailed observations of the double star uh, Mysar. Galileo used the above principles that uh, however many times smaller a star is, it's that many times further away. This is an assumption. And with this method, Galileo estimated that uh, Mysar is a double star. It has Mysar A, Mysar B. Uh, that he estimated that those two components of, of uh, substars, so to speak, they were 300 times and 450 times further away than the Sun, uh, respectively. So this means that if you do the geometry of this, uh, taking into account the size of the Earth's orbit, this means that the above effect should easily be noticeable. Mysar A, Mysar B, they should swung around this, each other dramatically, as Galilee observed them over time, just like the two index fingers. You should see from the goes from the left side to the right side. Uh, but that didn't happen. In fact, Mysar A and Mysar B didn't change positions at all. Everything remained exactly stationary, as if the Earth uh, did not move. Galileo kept observing, hoping six months later, when you're opposite side of the orbit, you should see something different, but no. Today we know that all the, the, the stars in the night sky are in fact much further away than Galileo estimated. This 300 times, 400 times, it it's, uh, vastly underestimates the distance to those stars. So, and that is why this effect uh, that Galileo was hoping to find cannot be detected. With the telescopes of Galileo's time, it's impossible to see those things. And there are, uh, Galileo's distance estimates are off because of certain optical effects that make it impossible to judge uh, distances in, in this manner. As uh, it just uh, distance is inversely proportional to, uh, to, to, to magnitude or brightness. That's unfortunately not possible. Now, so, okay, so it would be anachronistic to blame Galileo for not knowing these things. That was only understood much later, the, the, the specific technical optics that explains this. Uh, so we shouldn't blame Galileo for, for that particular part. However, Galileo's way of discussing the matter in the dialogue is certainly not above reproach. He describes the above procedure, but he frames it hypothetically. If some tiny star were found by the telescope quite close to some of the larger ones, 
they would, if the above effect could be observed, appear in court to give witness to such motion of the earth, says Galileo. As one scholar has observed, this is the very idea that later won Galileo renowned and for which he was to be remembered by parallax hunters in the centuries that followed. It is generally thought that Galileo never tried to detect stellar parallax for himself. Nevertheless, he's credited with his legacy to future generations. This is what one scholar said. In reality, Galileo reserves, deserves no renown for this because the idea was not his own. It had already been explained to him in detail, not only by Castelli, as I just mentioned, uh, who, who discovered the double star Mysore and explained his importance for parallax to Galileo. It was also explained even earlier to Galileo by Rampo in 1611. There's no indication that Galileo thought of any of this uh, before his friends explained it to him. And Galileo's discussion in the dialogue is deceitful. He didn't want to state the truth, of course, which is that he had tried the experiment and it came out the wrong way. The data said that the Earth didn't move. Well, that would, it would only be uh, relevant to convey that information if you're an honest scientist concerned with objectively evaluating the evidence. And Galileo instead finds it more convenient to pretend that this falsifying data doesn't exist. Instead, he presents the double star idea as a suggestion for further research, and he pretends that he hasn't already carried it out, he speaks about it in hypothetical terms. That way, he doesn't have to explain actual data or engage with seri seriously with actual uh, current astronomy, like the system of Tycho, for example, which agreed better with, uh, with this data, because it postulates a stationary Earth that would be good evidence for that hypothesis. But Galileo doesn't want to go into that, so he just pretends that this problematic data doesn't exist. It's much easier for Galileo to suppress his data, disingenuously insinuate that the outcome of the observations would be the opposite of what he, in fact, knew that they were. So let's turn to one more topic regarding Galileo's telescopic astronomy. There are rings of Saturn. We all know that a conic uh, cartoon planet look, you know, Saturn with its rings. But that image only became clear some 20 years after Galileo's death. Christian Huygens published a book on Saturn in 1659, the, where the rings are depicted uh, with perfect clarity, you know, just as we're used to seeing it today. But the telescopes of Galileo's day were not good enough to show the rings of Saturn with uh, any clarity. Instead, Galileo thinks the rings are actually two moons. Saturn is made of three stars, says Galileo, that is to say, uh, two, uh, two moons around it. Or the planet has two ears, was another way of putting it. Well, look, uh, we can't blame Galileo for limitations that were inherent to his time. It was not his fault that he didn't discern uh, the rings of Saturn, neither did any of his contemporaries. The, the, the telescopes, the quality of the telescopes were not there yet. However, we can blame Galileo for his lack of balance in evaluating the evidence. Galileo does not say, as an honest scientist might, that his theory about Saturn's uh, companion stars is the best guess on the available evidence. And, uh, well, we can't know for sure until we have better telescopes. That would have been a reasonable thing to say. Instead, he boldly proclaims it as certainty that Saturn is accompanied by two stars on its sides, quote, as perfect instruments reveal to perfect eyes. Those are Galileo's words. 
and they are of course very hubristic. But does Galileo for you always always stating his case, not least when he's wrong? In the same vein, Galileo overconfidently declared that the appearance of uh, Saturn's companion stars or moons would never change. Here's what he says. I, who have examined Saturn a thousand times at different occasions with an excellent instrument, can assure you that no change at all is perceived in him. And for the same reason, we can, can render as certain that, likewise, there will be none. So the thing will never change. Uh, bombastic certainty, as usual in Galileo, all the more embarrassing than when, in fact, the appearances did change radically soon thereafter. Here's Galileo writing again just a few months later in the same year, Quote, I've found Saturn solitary without the assistance of the supporting stars. Now, what is to be said about such strange metamorphosis? Perhaps the two smaller stars have vanished and fled suddenly. Perhaps Saturn has devoured his own children. That's the quote from Galileo. So that's a reference to classical mythology, this part about uh, devouring the children. Saturn, the god... Uh, devoured his newborn children to forestall a prophecy that he would be overthrown by one of his sons. Anyway, the, so one moment Galileo says that thousands of observations prove that Saturn's companion stars will never change, and then just months later he has to admit that, whoops, it turns out that that exact thing he said would never happen actually took place almost right away. So there was certainly some bad publicity especially at the time when many doubted the reliability of his telescope. And so we know now, of course, that the so-called disappearance of Saturn's rings, it was due to the Earth passing through the plane of the rings, so that uh, the line of sight from the Earth was parallel to the plane of the rings. So that made the ring invisible, just like a, a sheet of paper become vanishingly thin, you know, if you look at it exactly sideways. So it was, it's not that it was gone, it was just you were looking at it in such a way that you couldn't see, from such an angle that it was invisible. But Galileo did not interpret it that way. Instead, he proposed what he considered to be some probable conjectures about the future appearance of Saturn's companion stars. And this theory was based on attributed to them a slow revolution, like very slow-moving moons of some sort. Later, he praised himself for thinking in my own special way, he marveled at how I took the courage to make those brave conjectures. Those are Galileo's own words there, uh, praising himself. Indeed, uh, Galileo liked his model so much that he also took the courage to lie about having made observations uh, verifying it. He claims that he saw Saturn triple-bodied uh, this year, writing in 1612, at about the time of the summer solstice. Modern calculations, however, show that the ring of Saturn's would have been vanishingly thin at this time. It would have been invisible. There was a paper on this in the Journal for uh, History of Astronomy not long ago. Here's the conclusion from that paper. Clearly, Galileo could not have observed the ring of Saturn at the summer solstice of 1612, yet the picture of the Saturnian system that was accepted by Galileo implied that the ring should have been visible, so much so that he made a claim to, the, to this effect that we know must have been untrue. But, oh well, let's... Uh, Business as usual in Galileo land, uh, fake data that is uh, made up to, to fit the theory rather than honest testing of theory against the facts. Okay, so these three episodes that I covered uh, today, uh, the comets, the double stars and the 
rings of Saturn. Those were the last topics that I wanted to cover as far as Galileo's work with the telescope is concerned. Next, I believe uh, we shall have to get to the real uh, hot potato here, Galileo and the church. So we have that to look forward to. Thank you.